Hey, thanks for tuning in. The audio presented to you is copyrighted by Oak Ridge Baptist Church. Dear Lord, God, I thank you so much for the opportunity that you've given me to preach to your people today. Lord, I ask that you would speak through me, that you would anoint me with your Holy Spirit for the preaching of your word, that I would teach, reprove, correct in all righteousness, that I would rightly divide the word of truth. God, that I would speak not with the enticing words of men's wisdom, but with your holy words, that the faith of the people here wouldn't rest on that which is faulty, but on that which is eternal. God, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Several days ago, I, um, I went through my last audible book credit. Those of you who don't know, I really enjoy listening to audiobooks, and I have for many years. In fact, um, I made a decision when I was in Okinawa. Uh, I had deployed there, and um, I had the opportunity I could either pay for cable or I could pay for a subscription to this new startup company called Audible. And uh, I decided um, I'm going to try Audible, and I've been a member for ever since. So 15, almost 20 years now I've been a member. So I have hundreds of audiobooks on my, uh, that I've gone through. And uh, what I didn't realize was going to happen was that my family would also become audiobook uh, uh, addicts like I am. And so over time, what I've, what I've noticed is that my credits, I get like a, a certain number of credits every, every month, and they disappear before I can use them. And now I'll find random books on my, on my Audible stream that, uh, that were purchased for my children so they could listen to audiobooks. And so I ran out of Audible credits, and, um, and I, I had to go look for other things to listen to. And um, so I began listening to this really interesting article in The Atlantic. Now, I get a lot of grief in my family and among my friend group because I listen to things other than Fox News and The Daily Wire. Um, I'm not a strictly Tucker Carlson person, and so I listen to different news sources, and The Atlantic is one of them. It's very, very liberal, very liberal, but sometimes it's interesting to get other perspectives. And so I was reading or listening to this article um, about the problems that they're having in California, and the, the article was entitled, California, Is California Still the Golden State? And it was fascinating. Because the author went uh, throughout California and he explored these different issues from different perspectives. So we all know what's wrong with California. It's a horrible, horrible garbage dump place where everything is broken and it's just terrible right now. There's homelessness and crime is rampant, all this kind of stuff that we see. And, uh, and so the, the idea was we're going to go there and, uh, and we're going to see what the, what the reason is. And, and is there any hope left for this place? Uh, and so he would sit down with with people at these kind of high, because it's the Atlantic, they would go to these like highbrow dinner parties where people would come and he would talk to them. And, and it would be anywhere from like really prominent business leaders to uh, very super progressive uh, authors. And everybody recognized that the problems were the same, right? So yes, crime is a problem. Yes, homelessness is a problem. Yes, uh, dwindling water supplies is a problem. And yet everybody 
blamed the other side for that problem. So when they started talking about homelessness, the issue was, well, why do we have this problem with homelessness? And the progressive uh, authors would be, it's all those rich people, they're making too much money and everything's too expensive. And then if you talk to the conservative people, they said, no, it's not uh, rich people, it's, these, uh, it, it's, it's the lack of law and order and we need to clean out these, these homeless camps. And over and over and over again, it went the same way. Everybody acknowledged that there was a problem, but nobody really knew what to do about it, how, how to fix it. Uh, and and I, think that, I think that we all are kind of in that place now. We all can look around and, and, and pretty objectively say, we're worse off now than we were even 10 years ago. The country seems to be on a trajectory that we feel, or the majority of us feel, is not going in the right direction, and we don't really, we can't agree on how to fix it. And we can't really even agree on whose responsibility is it. Who is responsible for the starry state of our nation and our community and what are we supposed to do about it? What do we do about things that are broken? This filters into our church as well, right? As men and women of faith, it can become hard to figure out what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to act, when can we act, when can't we act. What are we supposed to do in the face of the intractable evil of the world around us? Our passage this morning comes from a very interesting book in the Bible that really seeks to answer what is the responsibility of God's people living in a community. Well, last week we discussed the book of Deuteronomy, and it really kind of bookends what we're looking at. Deuteronomy was a book that's really a sermon written to a group of people preparing to enter the promised land. Remember, we talked about Moses was declaring to the people the curses and the promises that he was making to them. If you follow my law, if you worship me faithfully, I will give you this land and you'll be able to live here. This is the land I promised you, you get to keep it. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, there's a curse that's pronounced. He says, if you turn away from me, if you rebel, if you leave me and follow other gods, then you will be taken out of the land in captivity. The book of Esther happens after this has happened. See, God's people didn't do what God wanted them to do. They rebelled against God. They walked away from Him over and over and over again. Over hundreds and hundreds of years, almost a thousand years of rebellion on the part of God's people until God finally was done. And like an exasperated parent, He said, you know what? Y'all are going to go spend some time and time out. I'm going to take your toys away from you and you're going to go have to sit with your nose in the corner. Until you figure out who you want to be. And so he sent the Babylonians in and they conquered the city and they led the people off in chains and slavery into exile by the rivers of Babylon. Well, that empire, as so many empires do, fell. The Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. And God's people were left servants to a pagan empire in a foreign land. And that's where our story starts this morning. 
with God's people spread throughout the ancient world under the thumb of a pagan emperor. Many years after the exile, God's people found themselves under the thumb of a pagan emperor named Ahusarius. Now, Ahusarius is known more commonly by his Greek name, Xerxes. Okay? This is Xerxes. Xerxes the Great, a tyrannical eastern king that tried to conquer all of Europe until he was stopped by the equally pagan but super awesome Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae. Okay? We're not going to talk about that, even though I wish I could do a sermon on that. The important thing is to see what was happening behind the scenes. See, Xerxes, Ahusarius, was a petty, uh, vengeful, vindictive man. And so at the beginning of Esther, he throws this great big party. It's actually the party where he plans out his assault on Greece. We know about this from the book of Herodotus. This is a a totally non-biblical book. They're talking about this. So we know this party happened. It was 120 days long. Okay? Imagine for a second a 120-day party and all that would entail. So he throws this party. And in the midst of this party, he gets all tanked up and decides he's going to show his leaders how much he's got control over his woman. Because Xerxes is an alpha male, okay? You tell everybody that he's the one that wears the pants in the family. So he calls out to his queen to show her off. He's like, why don't you come on in here, baby? And she basically tells him to go fly a kite. He said, you ain't tell me what to do. I'm my own woman. I'm a grown woman. Well, Xerxes isn't going to be able to handle this. So what he does is he says, okay, that's fine. You won't come in here and entertain me at our party? Fine, I'm going to set you aside. Am I not the king of kings? Can I not have any woman in the kingdom? So what I'm going to do, not only am I going to put you aside, I'm going to do the tackiest thing possible. I'm going to hold the bachelor 400 B.C. I mean, nobody would ever do this, right? Get a bunch of needy women, put them in a room, and have them fight over the love of one man. Some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about, because you're sinners, okay? So they have this contest. They get all the women, they put them together, and they doll them up, and they get them all, they paint their faces, they get them all, you know, make them look really nice, and they trot them into the king. And we all know what they went into the king for. Each one spent one night with the king, and at the end of that, he chose one of them to be his queen. And that woman that he chose was the woman Esther. Now, Esther was a Jewish woman who had been kind of adopted by her uncle Mordecai. Uh, And and Mordecai had like said, hey, Esther, in a not creepy way, you're really hot. What we're going to do is we're going to put you into this pageant. So maybe you can get into um, into the king's harem and then like that would be really good for you. Now, in and of itself, that's pretty tacky to do that with a family member, but whatever, he did it. And Esther wins out, wins the favor of the king, and the king makes Esther his queen. Our story begins after Esther has married the king, and as another crisis kind of arises out of this. We read in verse In chapter 4, verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Well, that's kind of confusing. 
So let's break that down a little bit. So here's what had happened. Esther's now the queen. Mordecai has been given a position of some authority. He stands at the king's gate. He's an official of the king. This is a big deal for a Jewish guy. I mean, these people were, were carried off into slavery not 50, 60 years before. So now he is an official of the king. Ah, but here's the deal. The more powerful your position, the more you get exposed to dangerous people. So he's in the palace, and in the palace there's some snakes. And one of those snakes is a man named Haman. Haman, we're told, is an Agagite. Okay, now what does that mean? It means he is a descendant of the Amalekites. That's a group of people that Israel had fought a long and bitter war with. In fact, the Jews were supposed to have wiped them out completely. The king Saul was told by God, wipe these people out, but Saul didn't do it. Instead, he enslaved them. And that created centuries of conflict between Jews and Amalekites. And now this man has achieved the highest level of power in Persia. Well, Mordecai doesn't want to show respect to this man. No Jew is going to bow down to an Amalekite. We, we read that in the Jewish writings called the Talmud. And so he shows disrespect to Haman. And Haman decides, you know what? I've got some power now. I've got some money. We're going to go ahead and put this thing to bed. So he hatches a plan. Haman decides that not only is he going to crush Mordecai, he's going to kill all the Jews. So he gathers together his massive fortune, and he goes into the king. He says, oh, king, I've got a great idea. Did you know that some of your subjects are this really obnoxious group of people called the Jews? And the king's like, really, the Jews? I didn't even know. He's like, yeah, they're the worst. But I'll tell you what, I'll do you a favor. I'm going to give you a flobbity jillion dollars. It's 10,000 talents. It basically means like a huge, ridiculous amount of money. I'm going to give you a huge, ridiculous amount of money, and in exchange, what you're going to let me do is just kill them all. And we'll get all their stuff. And the king's like, mm, that seems like a good idea. You go ahead and do it. Well, now Mordecai has learned that this is about to happen. And he realizes that he messed up. He angered a man with incredible power, and that man is about to crush him, his family, and everyone who's related to him. He's about to crush his entire people because of Mordecai's mistake. So what does Mordecai do? He went up to the entrance of the king's gate. He put on sackcloth and ashes. This is a sign of mourning. He basically becomes a public protester, like those guys that stand out in front of the White House. Have you ever been to the White House lately? There's all kind of weirdos out there that are dressed up in weird things, and they have signs, and they're shining. That's who Mordecai becomes. He goes from being a palace official to now someone who is protesting what is about to happen. He begins to lament the things that are going on. He made a mistake, and now everyone is going to pay for it. See, Mordecai sought power, but power comes with danger, and his, his actions have put all of Israel at risk. There's a lesson here. Often we think that our sins and our actions will only apply to us. But most of the time, our sins and our actions will affect everyone around us. 
It's my sin, but my family will pay for it. It's my sin, but my community will pay for it. It was Mordecai's sin, and his entire people will pay for it. Oh, brothers and sisters, we need to be very careful that because we live in a community and the choices that we make to be selfish or self-centered or just blind to the injustices around us so often can affect the things that happen. A wise man once said, all that evil needs to exist is for good men to stand by and do nothing. I think many of us wish that we were Islands unto ourselves with no responsibility to the people around us. Oh, brothers and sisters, that has never been the case. We are responsible for the community that we live in. You can't hide from it. That homeless guy on the corner is your responsibility. That broken family that you see waiting outside of HEB, that's your responsibility. That doesn't mean that we necessarily have to give out money, but it does mean that we don't get to hide our faces from the injustice and the brokenness around us. Unfortunately, Mordecai had a hard lesson in this as he saw how his actions affected his own people. And so he does the only thing that he knows to do. He tries to draw attention to it, and he does. And so in the next section of our text, we're going to see a prolonged exchange between Mordecai and Esther. Beginning in verse 4, we see this. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. Now, let's understand why Esther was distressed. Esther is standing at the top of a really wobbly pyramid. She's the queen. And in our minds, thinking that someone is the queen sounds like it's a really important role. We think of Queen Elizabeth or Queen Victoria, somebody that wields power. But in this instance, all the queen is, is the head person in the harem. Okay? The king's got a lot of women. And she's sort of in charge of them. So rather than thinking about her like she is Queen Victoria, I want you to think about her like she is the head person in a cutthroat sorority. And they're all sleeping with the same man. I want you to imagine what that drama looks like. That makes real housewives of the Jersey Shore look super tame. These women are all trying to cut each other's throats to be in a position of power. These women are all trying to cut each other's throats and undercut each other so that they could give birth to the one who would be the next king. Because they know That whenever that person takes power, they will kill all the rest of the princes. This is a dangerous environment. And one misstep can lead to your total destruction. It's actually not that much unlike a sorority after all. And so Esther hears that someone who is closely associated with her is out in the square embarrassing her and the king and everyone around her. So she does what is natural. She says, you need to shut up. So she sends out clothes to him to clothe him. She's like, hey, take the sackcloth off. Here's some legitimate, respectable clothing. It's like what we did at summer camp. When the girls came out in shorts that were way too short, we're like, here, here's some real shorts you can wear. 
She sends out garments to clothe Mordecai so that he may take off his sackcloth. Well, he put the sackcloth off, sackcloth unintentionally. He's trying to draw attention to what's going on. And so we read, he would not accept them. And Esther called for one of the king's eunuchs, the, the, the man who'd been kind of tasked with protecting her and serving her. And, and, and he, she ordered him to go out to Mordecai and find out what was going on. So she's tried to shut him up and make him be quiet and kind of make him act respectably and he won't do it. So now the, the eunuch comes out to kind of talk to him to find out what exactly is happening. Often our first instinct whenever we see a problem is to sweep it under the rug. It's to run away from it, to hide from it. We don't want to see it. We don't want to deal with it. It's one of the reasons why the church had so much problem, so many problems with sexual abuse scandals. People would come forward and talk about the things that had happened, and the first instinct that, that many in the church had was to just make it go away. We don't want to deal with it. We don't want to, we don't want to process this. We don't want you to exist. We want to pretend like everything is okay. We want to pretend like there's no homeless people, that no one's poor, that nobody does crime, that everybody's okay, and if I don't see it, then it doesn't exist. It's like when my little cousin covers his face and he thinks that I can't see him. And I have to be like, Nash, just because you can't see me, it doesn't mean that I can't see you. Same for you guys. If you're sleeping right now and your eyes are closed, I can still see you. I can see everybody from up here. So she attempts to quiet him, and then finally she has to see what's going on. And you can almost see Mordecai's mind working as Esther's messenger comes out to him. She is his lifeline, and like a drowning man, he's going to grab onto it and not let it go. Hadak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. And the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury. And he gave him a copy of the written decree. And he asked her to go in and beg the king's favor and plead with him on her behalf. He has embarrassed her. And now he's going to ask her to go and advocate for her people. To be their voice when they had none. Well, Esther may be her people's lifeline, but intervention is going to be a risky business for her. And so she responds to this request in this way. Um, Esther spoke to Hadak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman go into the king inside the inner court without being called, there is one law to be put to death. You didn't just go into the king's presence. This isn't a normal marriage where you can just like go into the next room and be like, Hey, honey, would you maybe not kill all the Jews? You're like, ah, whatever, babe. No, this is a very different deal. This relationship is intertwined in politics. The king has many queens and they come from different areas and he unites these different peoples together through these marriages and you don't just go into the king. You don't get to just go have a conversation with him. His advisors are very careful about who gets the ear of the king. And if you go into the king without his permission, without it being arranged for, you get killed. And so Esther goes to Mordecai and she explains this to him. She's like, look, you don't understand I can't just go and do this. 
This is dangerous. There is danger involved in advocating the things that you want me to advocate. Esther wants Mordecai to understand the magnitude of the favor that he's asking. It might cost her everything. And here we begin to see the character of Esther. I think one of the dangers that we have when we read the story of Esther and Mordecai is we've kind of turned them into heroes. We have this exalted view of them. But if we're, real, if we're honest with ourselves, they're actually pretty flawed people. One of the ways we know that is that, that Esther's name, have you ever thought about Esther's name? We don't see it anywhere in the Bible beforehand. That's because it's not a Jewish name. It's a Jewish name now because of Esther. Esther's name is actually a, 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 a modification of the Persian god Ishtar. She has taken on the name of a Persian goddess. That's who Esther is. She's a sellout. She has assimilated. Same thing with Mordecai. Again, you don't see Mordecai's name in any of the Bible before this. Well, why not? Because his name means Marduk. He also took the name of a Persian god. These are both sellouts who have tried to play power politics and now they have gotten stuck in a bind. And no one more so than Esther. Esther has a tremendous amount to lose. As when Mordecai comes to her and says, hey, you need to advocate for your people. She's like, look at all I could lose. I could lose my position. I could lose my wealth. I could lose my life. See, one of the dangers of success and comfort and wealth and power is that we become slaves to our positions. The more we have, the more we stand to lose. This is why Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Because our possessions possess us. And the more we have, the more likely we are to sell out God and our people for our comfort. And I know that many of you right now don't think that you're very wealthy. I know that many of you generally would probably identify as middle class. But each of us has wealth and possessions and comfort. And those things are an anchor to this world. We are far less likely to die to ourselves the way that Christ has called us to do the more that we have. We have to be very, very careful that our possessions and our power and our comfort do not enslave us. That they don't prevent us from accepting what God has for us. I can remember, I've talked about this before, the single biggest thing keeping me from following God's calling on my life for almost a decade was health insurance. I could not conceptualize giving up my health insurance so that I could go to seminary. And even though God was calling me and telling me what I needed to do pretty vocally, and even though I was miserable in the place that I was, I could not give up my health insurance. I, I just I couldn't conceptualize it. It had become an anchor and a chain tying me to a life that was beyond my calling. In the midst of that, when we are chained to this world, sometimes the 
only thing that can break us out of it is hard truth applied ruthlessly. And that's what Mordecai is about to do. This man who has sold out his culture and sought power and is now broken and weeping over his people finds some hard truth to tell to his people. And so he reminds her that doing nothing is just as dangerous, though it may not look like it. So Mordecai was told Esther's response, and this is what he said. He sent a messenger, and he, and he says this message. He says, do not think to yourself that the king's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He holds out three different messages to her. The first one is, you are not safe where you are. You think just because you're in the harem that this edict isn't going to come back and bite you? You think one of those, one of those snakes that, that you hang out with up there that's competing for the favor of the king isn't going to find out you're a Jew and use this edict to crush you? How do you think this is going to go when they find out who your family is? Proximity to power is proximity to danger. And you are at danger, Esther. But then he goes on and he begins to lay out He begins to lay out some other things to her. Her family might perish. She might perish. But there's a purpose to this. He says, you, you didn't get this on your own. You, you didn't earn this of yourself. You were called to this. And he asks her this question that kind of echoes down to us. How do you know whether or not the kingdom has come to you for such a time as this? You have been elevated and placed in a unique place at a unique time for a unique reason. You, above all women, Esther, have the power to save your people. Look beyond yourself. There is a responsibility there. God will preserve His people. He always has. But this time, in this moment, you get to be a part of it. You get to see God's glory poured out, Esther. Look beyond your comfort and your place and your wealth to the unfolding purpose of God. We don't know everything that Mordecai said to Esther but he may have quoted to her the advice that King Solomon gave to his less than stellar son in the book of Proverbs. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? There is a paraphrase of this by the great theologian Spider-Man who said, great power comes with great responsibility. Great power comes with great responsibility. God will judge us for the power that we had and the way that we used it. 
God will judge His children for inaction in the face of injustice or oppression. If you are in the presence of injustice and you stand by, God will judge you as surely as He will for sin. For you know, O man, what the Lord desires, but to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. These things are placed above sacrifice in the Old Testament. Love of neighbor is is elevated to the greatest commandment by Jesus. See, Esther has been set apart for a mission and there is danger in ignoring God's call. Brothers and sisters, you need to understand there is no right to inaction. There, There is no humble and quiet life that you just get to fall into as a Christian. No. We are called to live respectably with our non-Christian neighbors, but that doesn't absolve us from our duties. All the way back to the time of Noah, God has given His people responsibility to establish and defend justice. To see that wickedness and evil does not thrive. And none of us get to hide our faces from it. It's why we work against sex trafficking and abortion. It's why we serve the poor and the homeless and the immigrant. It's why each of us is expected to vote and voice the opinions informed by the gospel. You don't get to stick your head in the sand and pretend like everything's okay. This is the call of Mordecai to Esther, and it's the call of God to us. And here's the amazing thing. It works. Mordecai reminds her of her position, and her, his call galvanizes her to action. I think that the transformation of Mordecai and Esther in the book of Esther is as powerful as the transformation of Saul to Paul in the New Testament or the redemption of Peter after he has denied Christ. We see two vapid, sellout people who become warriors, who transform and move beyond themselves. Esther finds some backbone and says, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night and day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. She has changed She has become a heroine. And then she says what is probably one of the coolest lines in the Bible. Like this is one of those lines that that, that you could see in a movie. You know what I mean? Like this could be one of those cool lines that somebody says they've got their machine gun and they're about to go in and do some cool business with it. And she says, and if I perish, I perish. That's cool. It's like, it's like when the warriors, like the, 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 in, in the Native American culture, there was this group of people called the Kiowa dogmen, and they would have a sash and a spear, and what they were known to do is they'd take that sash off, they'd put it to, they'd stake it to ground with a spear, and they'd say, Ho'ahaka, hey, today is a good day to die. And they would stand their post. That's what Esther is doing here. 
She's taking her life and her freedom into her hands and she's going to go into the king and she's going to do battle for her people. She's going to speak truth to power in a dangerous way. See, the persistent efforts of Mordecai have resulted in Esther embracing her God-given purpose. The book of Esther is interesting because it is a book where the name of God is not mentioned once, and yet we see His hand at work throughout it. Broken people redeem a broken situation through the sovereign hand of a loving God. Mordecai had to shake Esther out of her sinful indifference by the courageous application of hard truth. And despite all of her flaws and all of his flaws, this unlucky duo is placed at the hinge of history for the Jewish people. And they don't disappoint. They preserve God's people and the people are able to go and rebuild the temple and repopulate the land. And 400 years later, Jesus is going to be born and he's going to change the entire world because these two did what God called them to do. Because they stood up when it was time to stand up. And brothers and sisters, are we ready to do that? As Christians, we must be ready to step up for a time such as this. We must be ready to serve God and take risks for the purpose of the gospel. We have to find the hardness in our spine and the courage to do the hard things, even if they cost us our friends, our jobs, our homes, our families. This is what Jesus meant when he said that he did not come to bring peace but war, that a man's enemies would be members of his own household. Are you ready for that? When we ask, who is going to fix the problems in our culture? Who is going to fix the problems in our world? You are. You have been raised up for a time such as this. Everything that you have, all that you are, is being directed at God's redemptive purpose for the world that we live in. The only thing that limits you is your addiction to the pleasures of the flesh and your own position. Oh, that we would be like Esther and that we would leave it all out there on the field, that we would put it all on the line for the call that God has placed on us. What is some of the things in the community that you're waiting someone to change? Is it crime? Is it injustice? Is it poverty? Is it broken families? All of these things are things that you can influence. But it may not look like what you think it looks like. What are you willing to do to help? Are you willing to risk your job, your reputation, or your relationships to get involved? Are you willing to commit your free time and your money to help where you can help? Are you willing to invest yourselves emotionally in people with complicated lives and heartbreaking situations? Are you willing to get involved in the messiness of the lives of broken people? Now, how can you help? Well, the first thing is you can focus on the things that you can change. I know this is going to come as a surprise to you, 
No one here can change the Supreme Court. You can't. You can vote. You can advocate. None of you can change the Supreme Court. I can say with very little doubt that there is no one here who will probably ever serve on the Supreme Court. Statistically, most of us are probably never going to be in Congress, let alone uh, the presidency. We're probably, we might, could be city councilmen, maybe, but most of you aren't even willing to serve on a neighborhood board. Let's be real, most of y'all ain't willing to serve on a church committee, okay? So what are the things you can do? Well, you can focus on local things and local changes. You cannot change the slide of our country into broken families and destroyed schools, but you know what you can do? You can go about a mile down the street here, fill out a background check, and serve as a mentor to a child at Hobby Middle School. I talked to the principal up there last year. I walked through the door and thought, oh man, these people are gonna be super opposed. I'm a Baptist minister, they hate us. That guy was like, he begged me, please send me people to be his mentors. These kids don't have families. They, 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 they don't know where they're going or what they're doing. Nobody is there to tell them what's right. I want your people to come in here and share the gospel with my students. Guys, that's a layup. That's a softball. That's what you, like when you're in, in slow pitch t-ball, that, that's what that is. You don't even have to march for that. You don't have to protest for that. All you have to do is fill out your name and give some time. Help us when we go feed the homeless and go and pray with somebody. Work in our food pantry. There are tons of opportunities at this church to be able to affect the homeless, the needy, and the broken. We partner with people that are already helping. There's all kinds of ministries out there. These things are scary and costly. But dear Christian, you have been saved and set apart for a time such as this. But I need you to understand this. While we need to stand for the poor and the marginalized, there is a greater lesson here for us. See, the book of Esther is one of deliverance. Esther is elevated from humble beginnings to intercede and save her people. And she does. The Jewish people were not eradicated. But she was just a human being. And like so many of the other heroes in the Bible, she is there to point the way to the one who would be Israel's final and greatest savior. She risked her life to intercede with a great and powerful king. Jesus gave his life to intercede with the king of kings. She was an obscure woman who was elevated. Jesus was eternal and he degraded himself to be one of us. Esther saved her people for a season. Jesus saved his people for all time. And so as we read this book and we are empowered to for change in our community, we can't ever forget that the biggest problem that the people in our community have is not crime, it is not poverty, it isn't broken families, it isn't the estrangement from the community. The biggest problem that the people in our community have is that they don't know Christ. There are 30,000 people within a mile and a half of this church. 
and 23,000 of them are lost. That is the single biggest problem that we have. And I would dare say that it is the root of all of the other ones. So I want to tell you today, you are being called by God right now to step up for the broken and those who suffer injustice and for the poor and for the needy. But more than all of those things, you are being called right now to go and share the gospel. It is something that every single person in this room is equipped to do. Because each and every one of you who have been saved has a testimony you can share. So I want to encourage you today. You have been called for a time such as this. And you have to decide how you will respond. In, in a moment, we're going to have a time of response. This is a time when you can respond to God's call on your life. God calls each of us into obedience with Him. He calls us out on mission. And that looks differently in different times. At first, it looks like accepting Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. So if you have never accepted Him as your Lord and your Savior, now is the time. We're going to sing a song. We're going to say a prayer. I want to encourage you to come forward. We're going to have some people at the front here that can help you know what that looks like. Maybe you've accepted Christ. He's still calling out to you. If you have never surrendered to Him in baptism, come and do that. If you haven't joined a church, we'd encourage you to come and join ours. Maybe you've done all of those things and you still feel God working on your soul and you just want to surrender to the call of ministry that God's placed on you. Come forward and in the presence of God's people, surrender to the ministry. Maybe none of those things applies and you're just hurting right now and you don't know what it is God wants you to do. The altar is open for you. Come and kneel and pray. Nobody's going to bother you. If you want somebody to pray with you, we'll be here for you. I don't know where you are this morning, guys. What I do know is that God is calling out to each and every one of you, reminding you that you have been called for a time such as this.